Okay, all right. So I work with pre-married couples, newly married couples. Uh, those are the, the pre-marrieds here are those um, really cute, sweet, clueless couples that you often see walking by you and headed in that direction. Uh, been, on, been a part of the, it's called Merge, it's a premarital ministry I've been a part of for about 10 years here. We've been a watermark for about 14 and a half years uh, that we've been a part of this church. And then I've been on staff for 10 of those years, um, uh, married to my wife, Kristen. She is not here. Thus, I had to move the chair out of the way. We're married since the week of 9-11. So 9-11, 2001, that was a Tuesday. We got married that Saturday and then moved here to Dallas uh, a couple months after that. We moved here to go to Dallas Seminary and the plan for the Kadersha family was to, uh, to move to Dallas, to go to four years of seminary and get the heck out of Dallas as quickly as possible. And about 14 years later, we're still here. So that did not work. Uh, the Lord has blessed us with four children along the way. We've got four boys, twins um, that are Duncan and Drew. They're in the middle. They are um, 11 and a half, uh, sixth grade. They're in the midst of, of, uh, of hitting puberty. So that's fun. And then, uh, and then a nine-year-old who's actually the one on this side and then a seven-year-old right in the middle. And we're, we really love being a dad and mom to those four kids. My wife uh, is Kristen, amazing wife. We've had, it, we've had a good run for, uh, since 2001. Really, really love being married to one another. We work very hard in our marriage, and we love being married. Uh, she's a physical therapist and a stay-at-home mom. And uh, I know um, we are both incredibly, incredibly grateful for this ministry. And if I just forget to say this at the end, I just want to tell you guys, how proud of you I am that you're here. Yeah, I, I email consistently with people who need to come to re-engage, who say they want to and they don't show up. There's always an excuse that they don't come and they're not here. And I watch them as their marriage just continues to disintegrate as they isolate from other people and from one another. And I'm so thankful that you guys are here that you're making the decision to choose to work on your marriage when I know you have a lot of different options and places to be and things to do. You've got distractions, you've got kids, you've got work, you've got many things going on that, that would just distract you. There's no football anymore, so you can't use that as an excuse. But there's a lot of things that could pull us away. And I just want to tell you way to go, that it's worth the investment. And our team is so grateful that you have decided to work on your marriage and come to re-engage. And so tonight, what I want to do, this is, you know, I think kind of once a month, we do more of a teaching night. I know you get a testimony typically three times a month, and then one time a month is a teaching night. So this is, this is a teaching night. So we're, if you've got your book with you, and, and I hope you do, and you've got a pen, I'd encourage you to take some notes just to remind you of the few things that you may have heard at some point along the way and things that I think will be helpful for you moving forward. So if you're a note taker, take notes. If you don't take notes or you think what I'm saying isn't worthy of taking notes, that's cool. We're good anyway. But, uh, but if you want to take notes, please do. I'm going to start off with a quote from, uh, from one of my favorite authors, this guy named John Piper. He wrote this book called This Momentary Marriage, and I love the way that he talks about marriage. He says, there never has been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and always has been gargantuan. In other words, God's design for marriage is way, way up here. And every culture, every society, including 2016 Dallas, Texas, in this room and re-engage, every single one of us, even Susan Cox, has a low view of marriage compared to God's view of marriage. And so God's view is up here. Our view of it is down here. There's a gigantic chasm or gap between God's design and our view. 
Some cultures like our own have such low, casual, take it or leave it attitudes towards marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. And so my hope just in our next few minutes that we have together is to help enlarge your view of marriage and help make sure that you don't cheapen it. And we cheapen marriage all the time by the decisions we make, by our selfishness, by what I see in pre-married couples who move in together before they get married. We cheapen marriage when we choose to put our own needs before our spouse. We choose uh, to cheapen marriage through pornography, through infidelity, through selfishness, through financial issues. We are really good at cheapening marriage. And I'm I'm the best cheapener of them all. And so I'm definitely speaking to you as someone who knows how to cheapen marriage well by his own selfishness, as you'll see in a few minutes. And so I always hope that we have the right view of marriage. And so we're just going to take a few minutes and be reminded of what God has designed marriage to be. And so I'm going to go through a very quick definition by sharing a few scriptures with you and what God's word says about marriage. And so this all comes from God's word. It's from Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, Old Testament, New Testament, and just a few things to be reminded of what marriage is and what you have signed up for as a husband and wife. And so first, marriage is one man and one woman. I don't care what the government says, what the world says, what Barack Obama says, what anyone says, marriage is one man and one woman. That's the unanimous view of scripture cover to cover. Second, marriage is created by God. It's not our institution. And so we can't decide the rules of it. We can't decide what marriage is designed to be because God has designed it and he's created it in a very specific way. It's created by God. It's his design. And therefore he designs and determines the purpose. Marriage is oneness. And so oneness is a phrase we see in Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 and Matthew 19. And we don't use that word a lot. But what it essentially means is that a man and a woman come together and they form one flesh with each other. If you've ever seen the logo for for the merge ministry that I help lead, it's a blue and an orange coming together and forming something new in the middle. It's an arrow of two merging together to become one. The reason we chose that is, is because it's a great image of what God does in marriage, that two become one with each other. And when you're one, a few things happen. You're one physically. And so that means sex is really good and it's God's design and he intends for married folks to have sex with one another. He doesn't intend it for marriage and for pre-married couples, but for married couples, it's a really good thing. Like God is not disappointed when a husband and wife have sex. He's not grossed out by it. It's, it's perfect and it's beautiful and it's his gift to us in marriage. Oneness in one flesh also means that we're emotionally intimate with each other which means there's a level of closeness that you are to have with your spouse that's different than any other relationship. Yeah, I'll be authentic and share openly with you, but there's a different level of intimacy and closeness that I'll have with John and Ryan. There's, there's an even deeper level of intimacy that I have with my spouse, that, that I'm not afraid of what she thinks of me, that I could be, as the writer of Genesis says in 225, that I could be naked and have no shame. And so when he says that, it's designed to have this emotional intimacy that we are connected with each other physically and emotionally. It's a beautiful thing in the way that God has created marriage. Marriage is, is uh, it's permanent. It's designed to be a man and a woman coming together to form one flesh in a way that, that we don't get the chance just to, to decide to quit on it. And so I know a lot of you are probably at that place where you just want to quit. You want to throw in the towel. You want to give up. You're ready to get divorced. And I'm going to remind you and challenge you that God's word says that when you come together in marriage, that you were designed to be one flesh, you're created as one flesh together, and that there's a permanence in marriage. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder, let no man separate. That's in Matthew chapter 19. 
Marriage is a picture of God's love for us. It's the best picture that we have of how much that he loves us. And the beauty and the security that comes in a relationship with God is intended to be in the marriage relationship as well. Marriage is an opportunity to multiply and fill the earth. It's an opportunity to to have companionship with someone, a best friend, a buddy. It's a covenant relationship. And so I think one of the biggest things that I've got to help break the perception of in merge is that marriage is a contract is what people often think. That when I mess up or you mess up, we have the opportunity to quit and move on to another relationship. And God's word says that marriage is a covenant. Now a covenant is unbreakable. It's unconditional. It's the way that God relates to us. That once you're in a relationship with God through Christ, you can't be taken away. It's a beautiful thing. It's safety. It's the way that God has designed relationship with himself and the way that he in turn designs marriage. And so that, that's the image of it. That's what it's designed to be. It's all of those things. It's one man, one woman. It's created by God. It's oneness. It's permanent. It's companionship. It sounds awesome, but it's really, really difficult, right? You guys, you guys know that as well as anyone, that marriage is difficult. And the one promise about marriage, you probably heard this before if you've been coming, the one promise about marriage comes in 1 Corinthians seven twenty eight that says, if you have married, you will have trouble in this life. Amen. I see lots of heads up and down. Elbows going that way and that way. Okay. If you're married, you will have trouble. It's just, it's what happens when, when two people come together, that are broken. Okay, every one of us as, as married individuals has trouble. It's promised to us. It's not a surprise to God. It shouldn't be a promise or a surprise to us. And so very briefly, I just want to talk about like, why is it so difficult? And so I think there are a lot of different reasons we can come up with. Uh, this, this could be like a, a four week lecture series, hours and hours. I'm going to give you five things very briefly that I have observed over time that have led to the trouble that we all experience in marriage. Okay, these are going to go in no particular order, but uh, this I think would help you. If you want to write things down, please do. Number one is the reason that we struggle in marriage is because we're selfish. James 4.1 says, what causes fights, what causes quarrels among you, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? We fight, we quarrel, we're selfish. It's easy to spot in my spouse. It's harder to spot in ourselves. But we fight because we're selfish human beings. Now, I can give you a billion examples. And many of them would even go like to as recent as about two hours ago of where selfishness comes out in my my marriage. But I'm gonna give you my favorite one. It goes back to the year 2004. And so Chris and I married in 01. In 2000, we tried to have kids for about a year. We couldn't get, I couldn't get pregnant. She couldn't get pregnant. And so... We had to get some help, and so she took Clomid for one month, and then in May 26, 2004, out popped these twins that I showed you the picture of before. It wasn't that easy. They didn't just pop out, but we had twins in 2004, and just to give you like an idea of where we were season of life-wise, I was full-time in in seminary, and I was working part-time up here at Watermark as like an intern. I was working a lot of hours for about a quarter an hour, and then uh, I was working full-time In addition to all that, as a physical therapist, I'm a PT by background and was working at Baylor Hospital, not quite full-time, but probably 30 hours a week. Kristen was the breadwinner in the family until we had the twins. And uh, and so there was a lot of stress in our house. Like everything was turned upside down. We were kind of living the good life. We had, you know, no kids. It was just me and Kristen. We could do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, living the dream. It was totally like some great years. And then all of a sudden we, we get 
the stuff kicked out of us by having twins. Now, there was no sin involved. Like we didn't sin by having sex. There was no sin in having the twins, but our world got rocked. We got hit by storms and, tr- and, and just rain and uh, all kinds of things that would destroy a home. Like Matthew 7, 24 through 27 says that our lives will be hit by storms, by troubles, by trials. And we got hit primarily because one of our twins was a colicky baby. Okay, now a colicky baby, if you don't know what that is, I'm so jealous of you, but a colicky baby <laughs> cries all of the time. Like there is no way to console baby Drew. So Drew is one of the twins, uh, cried constantly. It did not matter what you did. You could rock him, you could hold him, you could feed him, you could put him down, you can, whatever you tried did not work for this poor, poor baby. Like friend, we cannot even remember his twin brother. I don't know how he survived. There's no pictures of him. We just, somehow he just kind of made it through. But Drew consumed every bit of our lives, every moment. And, and I remember one night we got in this like humongous fight. We lived over in Mesquite and we had this window that went from our family room into the kitchen and Kristen's back there with, Drew and he's screaming. And again, we don't know where Duncan is. He might've been, who knows where, but like she's got Drew and, and I'm yelling, like I'm yelling at my wife back and forth and it becomes very animated. It's not just like yelling. It's becoming like four letter words are coming out. And I always feel like I need to put this caveat in here. I was not on staff full-time at Watermark. I was just an intern. <laughs> not that that makes it right in any way whatsoever, but it starts getting more and more animated. And if you've heard the, the word escalation, like we could have been an escalation video. We don't know what we were fighting about, but before we knew it, I am banging my hands on the counter over and over. My life is over. My life is over. Don't you see? My life is over. Over and over and over. Let me remind you of a few things. Okay, my wife hasn't slept in months. She's got two kids that are attached to her constantly for feeding and crying. My, My baby is so sick that he can't not be in pain all the time. And my life is over. It's all about me. That was the big awakening in my marriage where I said, I am the most selfish person I know. That's not in a self-deprecating way. That's not like I'm the worst person. That's when I realized just how selfish I am and how much selfishness is a barrier to oneness. And so one of the great things about you being in re-engage is that you're going to have many opportunities to discover not where your spouse is selfish, but, but where you're selfish. And so I think if you finished up, if you got through all 16 lessons and you got to the other side and you had a list of all the ways that your spouse is selfish and a short list of your ways, I think you'd be missing it a bit. And so I want, to, I want to challenge you. You hear it a lot. Just draw the circle around yourself. Think about where you are selfish because selfishness will absolutely hinder oneness. I hindered oneness that day by my yelling and my acting like a, like a two-year-old. If you want to hear the conclusion of the story is really funny. So Kristen um, puts down screaming, crying Drew, and she comes running across the room and jumps on my back. Now I'm like, I'm like a big dude. Okay. Like I would say I could have played football in college, except I was in the marching band. And so that would not have worked well. But, but Kristen tried to knock me over and I just laughed at her. Okay, so I don't recommend that. That's not the best way to defuse a fight is by laughing at your spouse. It's a great story now, but it was not good in the moment. It continued to escalate and get worse and worse. And then finally, uh, I don't even know what happened. It just makes her a great story now and a great illustration of what an idiot I was, but it did not, uh, it, it ended well. Finally, we worked through it and, uh, and we laugh as we tell that story now, but man, that, that was a picture of my selfishness. 
Okay, so maybe, maybe your selfishness doesn't look like mine. Maybe you're not an escalator. Maybe for you, selfishness looks like you've got a new baby and the baby's crying and you act like you're asleep. Okay, or maybe you are, um, you're not getting as, enough sex in your marriage. You want more sex. And so instead of pursuing your spouse, instead of honoring your spouse, you look at pornography and you masturbate because it's easier. It's selfish. Okay, maybe you have financial issues and you know that you're in a lot of debt, but you really want something from the store. And so you choose to put your desires before your spouses. You put your needs before your families. Maybe for some of you, you know your spouse wants to pray with you at night, but your pride keeps you from praying because you're just embarrassed or ashamed. And so our selfishness consistently gets in the way of being one with each other. The second reason that we have trouble with this thing called marriage is just a fear of intimacy. Okay, this goes back to Genesis chapter three. Genesis one and two are fantastic. They're with one another. They're naked. There's no shame. And then all of a sudden Genesis three hits and the man and the woman are together and they're in the garden and they see there's like one thing they're not allowed to do. It's to eat the piece of fruit from that tree. And they go and grab it. You know, the woman grabs it and she takes a bite and she gives it to her husband who was with her and watched the whole thing take place. And then Genesis says at that moment, when they took a bite of that piece of fruit that God told them not to eat, that their eyes were opened. And all of a sudden they realize, hey, we were naked before and that was a good thing, but now we're naked and that's a bad thing. And so they covered themselves and they hid and they were ashamed and they tried to hide from God and everything changed in that moment. Well, we went from being just secure and confident and intimate to being afraid and hiding and a fear of intimacy. It all changed. And we experience that same thing now. We, don't, we cover ourselves with clothes where we're, where we're different, but we do the same thing in marriage. We cover up the things that are different because we're afraid to be intimate with other people. We're afraid to be intimate with our spouse. And so I'll let you see the things I want you to see, but, but there are some things that I'm just gonna hide or keep from you. And the way that God has designed marriage is that, that we would be emotionally intimate with each other, that we wouldn't hide, that we wouldn't be afraid, and that, that there should be this freedom in your marriage that says no matter what you're working through, that you're committed to work through it together as a couple, that you're not going to give a partial truth, you're going to give the full truth. And so I, I want to challenge some of you that maybe you're giving 75% or 90% or even 99%, you're just hiding some of it. I want to encourage you to be fully transparent and honest with your spouse. That's the way that God has designed it to have this emotional intimacy and security in marriage. Anything less than that, and you are not living out oneness as God has designed. Okay, we all struggle with that. I struggle with what you think of me. I struggle with what others think. I struggle with what my wife thinks. And every time I do, I'm not, I'm just living in a fear of intimacy. And, and let me tell you the, like, the best news in this. The absolute good news is that there is a God of the universe who loves you desperately. He knows everything you've done. He knows every thought you've had. He knows what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And do you know what he did in spite of that? He sent his son to die for you and to die for me. There's no secrets with God. We don't have to be afraid with him. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And so if God, who is the God of the universe, loves us that much, that he would send his son to die for you and me, then why would we fear being intimate with someone who is our spouse? If a perfect God can accept an imperfect human being, then why can't two imperfect people love one another as God has intended? I, I want you to not be afraid 
of being intimate with your spouse. That, that's not an easy thing that will take some work, but re-engage will be a great place for you to continue to work on where you're afraid of being intimate with one another. The third is that we are lazy and apathetic. Sorry to all you cat lovers out there, but, but we are lazy, we're selfish, we're apathetic, we quit caring. Like I see consistently over in the merge side of the, of the world and the pre-marrieds, they're pursuing each other incredibly well. They're creative, they're spontaneous, they have fun. It's Valentine's Day on Sunday. They're gonna crush it, they're gonna kill it. And we're all gonna be chumps compared to them because they're trying to impress each other. And so they put their best foot forward, their best face on, they're trying to impress each other. But then when we get married, we're like, eh, I got the girl. I don't need to do anything for Kristen. She's not going anywhere. I become lazy and I become apathetic and I put my needs before my own. And that just doesn't work well in marriage. It's not intended or designed to be that way. The fourth reason that we struggle is that we're ignorant. Like a lot, of, a lot of us don't come from good marriages or good families growing up. My, my dad died when I was six years old. My mom remarried to a good guy, but he never taught me anything. My parents never modeled what it looks like to, to have a Christ-like marriage or a biblically centered marriage. And they're still married, but I never had, like my excuse is, well, mom and dad didn't do it well. And so therefore I can't do it well. Or we look around us. We don't see a lot of good models of marriage. We look at television. We see no good images or pictures of marriage. And so again, a great thing about re-engage is that you will have the opportunity not to see perfect examples, but to see living examples of a husband and wife who love each other. You'll hear that every week in the testimonies up here. You'll see that. You'll experience that in your small group. You'll get to see models of marriage where they've taken away the excuse and they decide to work on their marriage. They're no longer ignorant of what God's design is. The fifth one, and this is by no means the least important on the list. The reason that we struggle with oneness and marriage is because we have a poor understanding of the gospel and of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says that we are to forgive one another in the same way that God has forgiven us in Christ. Colossians 3.13 says the same thing. Matthew 18, the the parable of the unmerciful servant is, is a beautiful picture of forgiveness. Now we all want forgiveness. I want to be forgiven, but man, it is difficult to forgive someone else. And it's especially difficult to forgive the person that we are to love the most. And when we fall short in forgiving our spouse and not being willing to extend forgiveness, we want it for ourselves, but when we can't extend it to our spouse, we have a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because again, the perfect God of the universe has forgiven you of everything that you've done, thought, said, will do, have done. It's forgiven, it is finished. And we are to forgive one another in the same way. And so this one is the fifth one on my list. And uh, after teaching this a few times, my friend John McGee was the one, he came up here and he just, he wrapped this up beautifully. And so I'm gonna wrap it up in the same way he did. He said that this is the fifth one on the list. It's not the fifth most in importance. In fact, this is the most important one. Not understanding the gospel and forgiveness is the answer to all of the other ones. When we understand the gospel and forgiveness, it's the solution to our selfishness, our fear of intimacy, our apathy and laziness, and our ignorance. Let me show you why. The gospel is the solution to my selfishness. When, when I know the gospel, I put my wife's needs before my own. I don't keep score any longer. I'm not selfish. I put her first. You are a new creation in Christ. 
That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. If you have trusted in Christ, you are a new creation. You are not a selfish human being anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. You have the ability through God's spirit, through God's word, and through God's people to deal with your selfishness. Second, the gospel helps us overcome our fear of intimacy. When we know the gospel, we know that we're fully known and fully loved by the God of the universe. When we understand the gospel and forgiveness, we know that we cannot be passive or complacent anymore. Instead, we see God's love that goes first, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, 8. A love that follows God's love for us and the gospel says, I'm not passive or lazy or apathetic. Rather, I initiate, I lead, I go first. I don't wait for my spouse to go. I'm the one that's going to initiate and lead out. The fourth thing the gospel does, it deals with our ignorance. In Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That's 2 Peter 1.3. The gospel takes away every excuse that we have. You no longer can say that you are ruled by your selfishness, that you are ruled by your fear of intimacy, that you are ruled by passivity, and that you are an ignorant person. All those excuses are taken away. Okay, here's, here's, the, here's the takeaway for you. What I want you to do, and I, I don't know if you do this, you know, when you get home tonight, or, you know, maybe you just take a minute in your group tonight. I don't know when you do it, but I want you to think through those five things. Here's the application, is to think through, where do I fall short? Am I selfish? The answer is yes, okay. Am I selfish? Am I afraid of being intimate with my spouse? Am I hiding from him? Am I saving things that I'm not telling her? And so is there a fear of intimacy? Third, am I lazy? Okay, that's one that, I, that I, I really am good at. I'm really good at taking care of my own needs and I'm just lazy and apathetic sometimes. And I'm a stinking marriage pastor and I'm lazy at times. Okay, fourth is, is it an ignorance issue? Or is it they just don't rightly understand the gospel and forgiveness? And so which one of those are you? Like, is it number one that you're really good at? Number two, number three, number four, number five, maybe all five, whatever it is, like your application, I think it'd be really good for you to think through. And guys, I would challenge you to go first. It's to say, here's where I really struggle to own it and to ask for forgiveness from your spouse. And to say, I have been selfish in this area. Will you please forgive me? You guys can do this and your leaders would love to help you navigate through some of this. I know it's not easy, but the gospel, which we know and which we hear is the solution to all of the things that prevent us from being one as God has intended. So I'd love to pray. And then do you want to come up, Ryan, to wrap things up? Okay. So Lord God, I pray. um, I'm so thankful for the way that you have designed marriage. It's not up to us to decide what it looks like and what it should be like and what, what, it should, uh, what it should be like. But God, you designed it perfectly and you designed it in a way uh, that shows us how much you love us. So I pray for every man and woman in here. I pray for every single marriage, God, that, that they would uh, understand that the gap between your picture of it and our view of marriage would lessen. I pray that we would deal with our selfishness and our apathy and our fears, that we would no longer be ignorant, God, that we would embrace the gospel, that we would em- embrace your forgiveness for us and that we would model that with one another. Thank you for what you're doing here in Reengage. And I pray, God, that you would that you just save every marriage in this room. You'd help it to, to be marriages that honor you in every single way. We love you in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.